it doesn't mean a 24-hour period. It means a period of time. Days is defined for us in the sentence. Days, these days belong to Isaac, and they're separately defined as 180 years. So days just means a period of time. Actually, a specific period of time, but that's what day means here. Leviticus 9.1 is another example. Leviticus 9.1, now it came about on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. Hmm, what does day mean here? Well, this is a specific set of 24 hours. And how do we know that? Well, it's a narrative passage. We have an ordinal number placed in front of the word day, eighth. And that indicates, and these things indicate that we're part of a series or sequence. So this is a 24-hour day. The next passage, Numbers 11.32. It says, the people spent all day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. He who gathered least gathered 10 homers, and they spread out for themselves, spread them out for themselves all around the camp. What does day mean in this verse? Well, this is just the daylight portion of a set of 24 hours. How do we know that? Well, because the context. This time we have day presented alongside the term night. We have all day, but we also have the word all, all day. And then we have all night and all the next day. So we have this contrast, this comparison between day and night show, showing us, okay, this is not a 24-hour period. This is just the daylight portion of a day. And then one more. Ecclesiastes 7.14. Ecclesiastes 7.14, in the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Now, what does day mean in this verse? Well, day is just a period of time. How do we know that? Well, look at how day is described. It is a day of prosperity and day of adversity. This is not how we normally talk about the word day. In fact, if we think about prosperity or adversity, they are not limited to a particular set of hours. It's not like, okay, this prosperity will end at midnight, or this adversity will begin at precisely midnight. No, there's just periods of time that can be a day or can be longer than a day. It could be years. The point is, in the time of prosperity or in the time of adversity, you need to consider this counsel. And this makes sense because of how wisdom literature operates, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, etc. They often speak in terms of maxims. And they'll talk about the fool, the wise man, the day of such and such. And they're talking generally, not about a particular one day or a particular person. But just from these examples, I hope you see that understanding day is actually pretty straightforward. You don't need a PhD to figure out which meaning of the word day is meant in a particular passage, you just look at the words and phrases used around the word. Now, let's consider how this works in Genesis 1. What is a day in Genesis 1? Now, we're not going to read through the passage, but you know that we have the word day appearing many times in the text. Verse 8, or verse 5, verse 8, verse 13, verse 19, verse 23, verse 31. What is the sense of day in these verses? Well, it has to be a 24-hour day. Now, how do we know this? Well, again, what are the clues from the context? We see that we're given the elements of the day repeatedly in the text. We have there was evening and morning. The day is defined for us in terms of evening and morning. That represents the 24 hours of a day. Also, the day is presented within a narrative sequence of events. 
which is usual for a 24-hour day. And the days are all numbered with an ordinal number. There was the first day. There was the second day. There was the third day. We just do the same things with this passage as we do with the other passages in the Bible. And we see grammatical context of the word day indicates we have 24-hour days. This is the plain sense of the text. It's not rocket science. This is the sense that the Hebrews would have understood when they got ready to go into the promised land. These were normal 24-hour days that God used to create the world. But there are more reasons than just the grammar for us to take day as 24 hours in Genesis 1. Let me give you four other arguments. So a total of five reasons to take a 24-hour day. On the slide, we should already be displaying. We have the grammar cues, which we just reviewed, evening, morning, the number, narrative sequence. Then there's the pattern of the Sabbath. Look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11. And this is where we get some, or we get God talking, God himself speaking and giving us the, or giving the people of Israel the Ten Commandments, and one of them relates to the Sabbath. And look at the way that God articulates this command. God says, starting in verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord that is Yahweh your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You see here that God uses the fact that he created the earth in six days and rested on the seventh day and making it holy as the reason that the Israelites must work in six days and then rest on the Sabbath day. This sanctification of the seventh day was no joke because we see just a little bit later on in the Torah an Israelite later violates the Sabbath by gathering wood on the Sabbath, and he's put to death. God was serious about the Israelites keeping holy this day that God made holy in creation. But if this Sabbath commandment was based on only a symbolic creation account, that doesn't really tell the Israelites how God created the earth or how long it took to do so. Or if this Sabbath commandment is based on the original creation week taking a length of time longer than a literal week, then the reasoning that God gives to Israel for keeping the Sabbath makes no sense. We've already noted previously that God could have commanded the whole universe to come into being in one moment. We should ask, why did God take so long? Why did he elongate his creation process into six whole days of work and then one day of rest? I mean, God didn't actually need to rest, did he? Well, of course not. But was not the creation process specifically designed, among other reasons, for the institution of Israel's Sabbath, which would serve as a shadow pointing to the ultimate Sabbath rest found in God's Son, Jesus Christ? The Sabbath picture and the Sabbath command are entirely tied up with creation. Taking the creation days as something other than 24 hours makes the Sabbath commandment totally arbitrary. And we can't just go down the wrath that, that, that some do of saying, well, it was just seven periods. He was, he was establishing a pattern of periods, and he had these periods of work and creation, and, and they're going to have periods of work, but their, their periods are only going to be days. Well, that's very arbitrary because 
if what God did had undefined periods, you didn't really know when one period went into the next, and there was no particular, um, it's not, not limited to a day, then couldn't somebody say the same thing about the Sabbath? All right, maybe your Sabbath begins at this particular time, but my Sabbath hasn't gotten that long, or hasn't begun yet. How do you know when the Sabbath is supposed to start or supposed to end? How could you enforce commandments about the Sabbath if the original, the pattern that the Sabbath is based off of, doesn't have a defined period? So the Sabbath pattern is another reason why we have to take the days in Genesis 1 a 24-hour day. And there's also the New Testament. New Testament confirms how the, both in the words of Jesus and the words of the apostles that the way to understand days in Genesis 1 is 24-hour periods. We see this most explicitly in what Jesus says in Mark 10, verses 5 and 8. So Mark 10, verses 5 and 8. It says that Jesus said, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. And in the context, Jesus is repudiating the idea of divorce as understood by the Jews in Jesus' day. They thought you could divorce for any reason. And Jesus goes back to the design of marriage in creation. He says divorce was not part of God's marriage design. But in the way he articulates this argument, he affirms 24 hours days in Genesis 1 because he says from the beginning of creation, this is how God made man and female, and this is how he made marriage. Now, for that to be true, there could not be long periods of time between day one and day six in the creation narrative. The only way to have these things be true at the beginning of creation, after all, man was not made on the first day. Man was made on the sixth day, and so was marriage. For marriage and man to be part of the beginning of creation, it couldn't be it couldn't be very long after the first day, the, the absolute beginning of creation. The only way to keep these time periods short and to keep man and marriage at the beginning of creation is to have the days of Genesis 1 be 24-hour days. And this can't be as some try to maintain that, oh, we should understand this phrase in Mark as from the beginning of the human race's creation. No, that, that's an inserting something into the text that doesn't have any clues that that's the way we should take it. In fact, if we, uh, we won't do this now, but if we trace the phrase, the beginning of creation, or even the beginning in the beginning in the New Testament, every other instance outside of this one refers to the beginning of creation and is not limited to the beginning of man. So to uh, assert that this verse must be talking about the beginning of man and not the beginning of creation is basically the ice it's just to force something into the text. The text doesn't, uh, doesn't give you that. It says from the beginning of creation. That's, whole, that's Jesus' whole point. There was no time, virtually no time, when these truths about male and female and marriage were. There was no time where these things were different because it's right from the beginning of creation. Now, there are other verses besides these, but this is, I think, one of the main ones. There's a fourth reason why we should take... Genesis 1 days is 24-hour days, and that's the problem of death and disease, the problem of corruption. Because long ages in the creation week, while used to support evolution and the current popular interpretations of the fossil record, they mean that death, disease, thorns, cancer, carnivore killing, they were all present in God's very good creation before the fall. I mean, that's what the fossil record shows us. We see these things in the fossils that supposedly existed on the earth before man and before uh, 
for the events of Genesis 2 and 3. Now, not only do death, disease, thorns, carnivore behavior, not only do they qualify, obviously, as not good, but they contradict the newness of the curses given to the world and to man as a result of sin in Genesis 3, and the explicit statement of the New Testament, like Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And Romans 8.20-21 Romans 8, 20 to 21 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, again, people will sometimes try to reinterpret or re-explain these verses by saying, oh, no, 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 death just, it was just human death that came through sin. But that's not what Romans 5, 12 says. It says, through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. Sin came into the world. Death came into the world. Yes, death spread to all men because they're part of the world and because they're part of Adam and his sin. But this, again, we can't read information into this that is foreign to the text. It says it entered the world. And that accords with what Romans 8 says. Creation was subjected to futility. That is not a good thing. Futility is very frustrating. It is not a sign of a good creation. And it's going to be set free from this slavery to corruption one day. To maintain long ages in Genesis 1, to see the days as something other than 24 hours, you have to contradict these texts. You have to insist that not good elements were part of God's very good creation before the fall. And then there's a fifth reason, that's church history. Before the popularization of geological uniformitarianism, and that just means that it's the scientific assumption that whatever we see today is the way things have always been. We can just read the processes that we see now to explain everything that's happened in the past. Before the popularization of this idea in the late 1700s, virtually every Christian theologian took the days of Genesis 1 as 24-hour days. Now, understand that the Age of Enlightenment, that's the period where this, this uh, change in, in belief and this... Uh, greater reliance on autonomous human reasoning. Understand that the Age of Enlightenment was not the first time that the church encountered naturalistic explanations of the universe's origin. There's a great quotation from early church father Basil of Caesarea. He lived in the 4th century, so 300 AD, and he laments the folly of those who distrust the Genesis account and suppose that the universe came about merely by the chance interaction of material elements. And that sounds a lot like evolution in the Big Bang. That idea was around, not articulated in the same way, but it was around. And Basil, this great church father, he was saying, why are people foolishly turning to this instead of trusting what Genesis said? Also, the early Christians, they lived in a time in which many ancient cultures claimed to have histories that went back for tens of thousands of years. I think Egypt said, claimed that it was 100,000 years old. And nations, kingdoms, they like to affirm how old they were because that seemed to give them more legitimacy. That seemed to give them more prestige. And so they, they claimed that they existed for thousands of years. But Christians, when they encountered these claims, they confidently dismissed them and asserted the Bible's history. And they saw this as describing a universe that was less than 6,000 years old. 
It was only during the Enlightenment that many Christians backpedaled on creation, miracles, and other aspects of the Bible that just didn't seem reasonable according to new trends in man's thinking. But that should tell us something. Was God's word really inscrutable for 1,700 years? Were all Christians, nearly all Christians, misled when they understood the days of Genesis 1 to be 24-hour days? That's quite a claim. That's, that has a lot to say about the Bible's inerrancy or the Bible's clarity, if no one could understand it properly only until the late 1700s. So to summarize, we have an abundance of reasons for us to take the Genesis 1 days as 24-hour days. There are clear grammatical cues in the Hebrew. There's creation's relationship with the Hebrew week and Sabbath. There's the New Testament statements on creation. There's the problem of death and corruption in days that are longer than 24 hours. And then there's the witness of 1,700 years of church history. So for these reasons and more, we can be confident that the days of creation cannot be anything else than 24-hour days. But before I move on, I want to briefly respond to some objections about what I've just presented. Perhaps you've heard these objections, or maybe you have them yourself, what seem to be reasons that you just can't take the Genesis 1 days as 24 hours. But here's the first one. I've got four of these. Genesis 1 can't be talking about 24-hour days because the sun wasn't created until day 4. There's no sun, there can't be day, and there can't be night. So clearly this is a figurative account. The answer to this objection is fairly simple. God made a 24-hour day-night cycle without using the sun. In the first three days of creation, that's what he did. And this is not a novel answer because it's the same answer that early Christians gave to people who objected to the Genesis account. (laughs) Modern man is not the first one to point out that, oh, it's strange that you have light without the sun. But they said the same thing that I'm saying now. On day one, God caused light to shine on the earth supernaturally. And this light must have been a directional light because there was also darkness. With this supernatural source of light, God caused evening and morning to transpire on the yet unfinished, but apparently rotating earth. There's no reason God could not do this. And the straightforward sense of Genesis 1 assumes that this is just what he did. So you can still have days without the sun because you've got God. Another objection. Genesis 2.4 shows us that the days of Genesis 1 are not necessarily literal. Hmm. Okay. Well, what does Genesis 2.4 say? It says, this is the account of the earth when they were created. Hey, that made earth. And this is very interesting. Genesis 1 and even the 3. They're still referring to um, referring to creation, and then God resting on the seventh day. But then verse 4 of chapter 2 seems to say that God created everything in one day. Now, is this a contradiction? Is, is this proof that the Genesis 1 account is not to be taken as historical narrative? Well, notice, if you're looking at it, the word day in Genesis 4 does not have the same context, does not have the same modifier as Genesis 1. We don't see numbers, descriptions of morning and Moreover, this usage of day comes after Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, verses 1, where he's explicitly seen all those context clues indicating our day. So if we just interpret before based on its local context and the context of what came before it, we understand that Genesis 2, 4 is not referring to a 24-hour day, but one of the other meanings of the day. 
which is a period of or a period, and this is talking about the period of creation. When it says in the day that God it's saying when God created the earth, in the period in which God created the earth. Again, you can have another meaning of the word day, but you always have to pay attention to the context clues. A day doesn't always and we have in Genesis 4 to show us that it indicates by the way, the phrase in Hebrew, in the day that, it can be translated idiomatically simply as when. When it says literally in the day that, that's just the Hebrew way of saying when. And we're going to see the same thing in Genesis 3 when God warns Adam that in the day that you eat of this fruit, you will die. Well, if, we, if we're not paying attention that to the context and how the word day can have multiple meanings, we'll say, well, God was wrong because Adam ate the fruit and he didn't die. I mean, he, he lasted more than a day. He lasted 900 years. Well, again, days being used in a different sense. In the day that is just when. When you eat this fruit, Adam, you're going to die. That's going to be the result. That's going to be the consequence. It's not restricting the result or the consequence to a 24-hour period. Now, one other, or two more objections. The next one is, well, Second Peter 3.8 says, Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. Now, surely this New Testament verse shows us that days can represent thousands or even millions of years in God's eye. Well, again, let's understand this verse from Peter in context. Verse 9 of 2 Peter 3 is especially helpful. It says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Peter's audience, persecuted believers, dealing with false teachers, they were wondering about the apparent slowness of God to keep his promise to come back to the earth. And there were godless mockers who were saying that God was never going to come back and that nothing would ever change or has ever changed on the earth. And Peter reminds believers that this is not the case. Things have changed a lot since the beginning of the earth. And God isn't slow at all. And in fact, God's sense of time is totally different from ours. It can't even be fully described or comprehended. Notice 2 Peter 3.8 says that not only is a day like a thousand years, but also a thousand years is like a day. How can these both be true? How can time for God be both really slow and really fast? Well, that's because we can't fully understand God's timing. God is not bound by time. But we can know that God is patient and that he does everything at exactly the right time. Moreover, we can, hopefully we can understand that this verse cannot be a formula for understanding days from God's perspective, or God days, as I've heard them called. If this verse were such a formula, we'd be hopelessly lost because we have two contradicting formulas. Is a God day a thousand earth years or is it one one thousandth of an earth day? Which one are we to take and how do we know which one we are to take? Not to mention Psalm 90 verse 4 says that a thousand years are like a watch in the night for the Lord, which is only about three hours. So how do we define a God day? It's fruitless for us to try and figure out exactly what a God day is because God doesn't experience days like we do. 
God is eternal. God is infinite. He is able to be in time and yet outside of time. We could not figure out what a, what a day for God is like because God doesn't experience days like we do. Moreover, it would be totally useless for any part of the Bible to talk to us in terms of God days. As I say, there's really no such thing. But if there were, we couldn't understand what is meant by those days because we don't experience them. So why even mention it? Talking in terms of God days, it only makes sense if God were talking to himself. But the Bible is not God talking to himself. The Bible is God talking to us, revealing himself to us. Therefore, he shouldn't use a term that only he would understand. He uses a term that we would understand. This is the pattern that we see in God's revelation. When he talks in terms of measurement, stats, he speaks in human terms. I mean, consider, when God gives Noah directions on how to build the ark in Genesis, he gives it to him in cubits. He doesn't give it to him in some God measurement that Noah wouldn't understand. That'd be, that'd be counterproductive. Noah would never be able to build a boat. God speaks to him in terms of cubits. Or in going to the other side of the Bible. In Revelation, when the Apostle John is hearing about the measurements in the New Jerusalem, he gets these presented to him in terms of stadia, which was a measurement familiar in the Roman era. Again, this is a human measurement. God doesn't speak in terms of some divine measurement that we could never figure out. He speaks in human measurement. In fact, Revelation 21, verse 17, even says, describing this measurement uh, that an angel is measuring, and it says, and he measured its wall 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. Now, that's, uh, that's so interesting because the text is telling us human measurements are angelic measurements, at least in this instance. So it is the same situation when God gives measurements of time in the Bible. Every time we have God describing the passage of time, it is in human terms. It is in ways that we can understand. It's always specific, but it is always in a way that we can comprehend. It's in our language. It's in days. It's in weeks. It's in months. It's in years. God wrote the Bible to communicate to us. So it makes sense that he uses our measurement system in his Bible. Therefore, there's no reason for us to change our understanding of the Genesis days based on 2 Peter 3.8 or Psalm 90. We can't reduce... Genesis, uh, the days of Genesis to God days or to days from God's perspective, because first of all, there's no such thing. Second of all, it would make no sense to talk to man in such a way, especially when he'd be so liable to misunderstand. That would definitely call the competence of God as a communicator into question. One final objection. Hebrews 4 shows us that the seventh day of creation, the day of God's rest, never ended. Therefore, the days of creation are figurative and not 24 hours. Well, Hebrews 4.4 does say that God rested on the seventh day from all his works and also clarifies that sinners and, and those that don't believe in God, they shall not enter my rest. Hebrews 4.9 further says, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And connected with this argument, from Hebrews 4, is the observation that the seventh day in Genesis 1 is the only one in which we do not see the phrase, there was evening and morning the seventh day. So the argument is made, all right, God rested on the seventh day, not, um, yeah, God rested on the seventh day, there's a Sabbath rest for the people of God, and 
this day in Genesis 1, the seventh day is unique, so it must be figurative. It must not be 24 hours, and therefore the other days must be like the seventh day. They also must be figurative and not 24 hours. Well, first of all, let me say that it is a non sequitur. It, it does not follow that the absence of the phrase evening and morning means that the seventh day never ended. The absence of this phrase at most suggests that there's something different about the seventh day, but we're told explicitly in the text of Genesis what is different about the seventh day. It is the day in which God rested from his work because he was finished. Likely, the phrases evening and morning were used as part of a transition statement between each day of creation, and so are not necessary on the day in which creation is complete. To say, oh, the absence of evening and morning must mean it never ended, that, that does not follow. That's just importing assumptions into the text. Second of all, the Sabbath rest described in Hebrews 4 is not the same as the Sabbath day of Genesis 1. The rest that God experienced, that first Sabbath, the seventh day of creation, it does, does indeed continue. It is in the celebration of accomplished work. Last eternally. I mean the Sabbath day. Indeed, there have been many recorded in the Bible. Sabbath. And many days without a true Sabbath rest. This is actually the point of the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4. People of Israel, even when they made it into the promised land, they didn't experience the true Sabbath rest of God because the people had not done what God did that first Sabbath. They had not rested from their work. In Christ, however, Jew and Gentile believers do exactly as God did at creation. They rest from work. They satisfy themselves in the accomplished work of God. This is what it means to enter God's Sabbath rest, and that is an eternal rest. Those who try to use Hebrews 4 to extend the length of the seventh day, and by extension the rest of the days of creation in Genesis 1, really bring two problems upon themselves. One, they confuse the Sabbath rest as the Sabbath day. The Sabbath rest is not the same as the Sabbath day. But two, if these two really were the same, the Sabbath rest is the Sabbath, Sabbath day and they never ended, the seventh day of creation would then be eternal meaning that the rest of the days of creation would have to be eternal too. Because the whole argument is, okay, whatever the seventh day is, the other ones have to be like it. Well, if you're saying the seventh day is eternal, and therefore that's why it's figurative, then so must the other days be. They're also figurative and eternal. And that creates a whole new set of problems. That actually makes the sense, that makes the, the sense of Genesis 1 impossible. It makes it senseless. So these objections are ultimately groundless. Let me say again that we can be confident in taking the position that Christians have taken for 1,700 years. The days of creation in sequence, the days of the creation sequence in Genesis 1 are 24-hour days. Now, let's look at specifically what happened within the first four days, the first 96 hours of creation. Now, we're going back to Genesis 1 now to verses 1 to 19, and we just want to Kind of get in summary form, what happened on each day? What happened on day one of creation? Well, we see this in verses 1 to 5 in Genesis 1. God creates the formless earth with water. God creates the empty heavens. God creates time. God creates light. 
God also separates light from darkness, and he names the light and darkness, calls them day and night, respectively. What happens on day two? Verses six to eight, God creates the expanse, or the firmament in the heavens. God separates the waters by this expanse. There are waters below and waters above, and God names the expanse. He calls it heaven. What happens on day three? On day three, God gathers the waters into one place to let the dry land appear. Notice that land appears, but it's not created on day three. God names the dry land earth, and he names the gathered waters seas. God also creates vegetation, all vegetation on day three, that reproduces according to different kinds. I'll say more about that in just a second. And then what happens on day four? On day four, God creates the lights of the heavens, including the sun, the moon, the stars. And the Hebrew word for stars in verse 16, it would include anything that shined in the night sky. So that would include the planets. Basically, all the celestial bodies of the cosmos were created on day four. And when these lights were created, they are given a few purposes specifically mentioned in the text. They are to serve as agents that divide day and night. They are to serve as time markers, signs for seasons, days, and years. And they are to give light to the earth. So God pulls back his supernatural light, and he has these celestial bodies provide the light. Now, I don't think we have time to go through these uh, interpretation questions on the next page. I'll just briefly summarize them. One question that might come up from this Genesis 1 account is, what are the waters above on creation day two? The most intuitive answer is that this is water visible in the air as clouds. Some have proposed that it refers to a canopy of water that once fell on the earth during the flood. There are some problems with taking either of these two positions, however, because it says that heavenly bodies were placed in the expanse and the water is supposed to be above the expanse. That means the stars and the moon, they would be below wherever the water is. And that clearly is physically impossible. Moreover, Psalm 148, verses 3 to 4, indicates that the waters above the heavens are still there. They are part of the highest heavens, and they are called upon to praise God. That would seem to contradict the idea of these waters falling during the flood. Therefore, some have suggested that the waters above describes a wall of water at the edge of the universe. That is to suggest that the universe exists in a giant bubble. Uh, if, if we had more time, I explained that what my position on that is. I think that this does refer to just the water in the atmosphere. I think this is talking from a phenomenological perspective, and is not talking is not actually saying that the stars exist below the water. In the Hebrew view, these things would have been around the same level. It, it, almost kind of like when they look at the heavens, it's like the ceiling of the earth, uh, like the inside of a dome, and they see the heavenly bodies and the water and the air all moving along the surface of the ceiling. And this is not inaccurate. The Bible does sometimes describe things that we're used to thinking about scientifically in phenomenological language. It's just like when we say sunrise or sunset. That is accurate to describe the experience on Earth, even if scientifically speaking, the sun doesn't actually rise or set. That's just the way it appears because we are rotating around the sun. <clears throat> I could maybe talk about that more another time. But let's come back to this idea of kinds. Notice the next question is, what is the significance of plants bearing seed after their kind? We see this phrase, after their kind, describing the, the way plants are created on day three. 
plants and trees producing seed after their kind. What's so special about this phrase? What's so significant? It means that these first plants were classified according to kinds that we produce in a way consistent with its kind. In other words, when God created vegetation, he created vegetation kinds. They reproduce only according to their own kind. And this is something we can observe today. We can scientifically classify distinct kinds of plants according to similar characteristics and according to fertility with one another, whether plants are able to pollinate each other or not. I mean, think about the different kinds of peppers you've seen or eaten. There are many different colors, there are many different shapes, many different flavors, yet they're all peppers. They're part of the pepper kind. Or what about, or think about wheat, barley, oats, and rye. They are also the same kind of plant. They are part of the grain kind. Now, if you plant pepper seeds, you're only going to get a pepper plant. Or if you plant barley seeds, you're only going to get a grain plant. Depending on how you breed your plants, you might see a new variation of the kind, but you don't see the plant all of a sudden a new kind. You don't plant a pepper seed and suddenly get a pumpkin plant. This is what we see described in the creation of Kino. In verses 11 to 13, God created the original kind all at the same time. There was the pepper kind, the grain kind, the onion kind, the berry kind, the bean kind, etc. These kinds did not yet have their great variation that we see today. But within the first plant were all the genes, all the DNA, all the genetic information that would produce the great variety that we do see in the kinds today. Now, this is another way that the Genesis account contradicts what is asserted by evolutionary theory today. Evolution supporters see all life originating from one source and then branching out in various directions and according to evolutionary changes. This branching and sub-branching from this first common source is sometimes referred to as the tree of life. From the evolutionary perspective of plants, there was a first progenitor plant or plants, and these first few plants evolved in multiple directions over millions of years. These first plants produced plant offspring that changed kinds, becoming new kinds of plants through evolution, and that process has repeated until the present day. But in contrast, Genesis' account instead describes, instead of describing a tree of life, it describes what could be called an orchard of life. Uh, let's, I don't know if you're looking at this slide already, but I have two pictures of that the tree of life versus the orchard of life. According to Genesis 1, all the different kinds of plants were present at the beginning and always reproduced according to their kinds, displaying increasing variety as they reproduced, but never changing kinds. As we'll see next week, this view of animals, created on day five and six. And uh, it's also true of man. Man is a kind. A uh, dog is a kind, a cat is a kind, and animals don't change kinds. They will increasingly vary, but they do not change kinds fundamentally. Animals are made, plants are made, man was made to reproduce according to kind. And that brings us to the end of what I want to present to you today. Let me just recap. What What have we seen? We've observed that Genesis 1 and another part of the Bible for why the days of creation should be taken as normal 24-hour days. We've also discussed answers 
to the normal understanding of the benefits one day, to the straightforward understanding. We've also looked specifically at what, what got accomplished in the first four days of creation. If you have comments or questions about this lesson, I welcome them. Please do them. I know that today's lesson was presented in a less traditional format, but I'm, I'm eager to answer your questions if I can. I do believe that understanding this account properly will be such a great benefit to you and to God's church. But that's all for this week. Next week, we're going to look more closely at days five and six of creation, the creation of the animals and the creation of man. So I hope you'll be back then. Let me close in prayer. God, we, we do behold you in awe again for what you did in creation. Lord, what you've done is amazing. And we still see the wonder of creation today, even in the world that is marred by sin. We see your amazing design. We see your amazing beauty. We see your amazing goodness. Oh, God, these things are more testimonies of you that show us that we are beholding. We must give you worship praise, thanks, and obedience. God, I pray that among your people at, at Calvary and anyone listening today, that they'd be so pleased to submit themselves to you as the great God. And they would love to serve you, be obedient to you, and to follow you, to be conformed into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, and enjoy eternal life with you forever. I pray that you'd be so gracious to accomplish this and bless the people as they continue to worship today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you all. Uh, hopefully we get this internet thing fixed up for next week, but I look forward to seeing you then.